folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E S Emil dot Gorgis at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right. So for today's episode, I've recently had the pleasure of being interviewed for the crew of Japan podcast. That's K R E W E, not crew with a C. Um, as in an organization or association that stages a parade or other event for a carnival celebration associated especially with Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And the crew of Japan are indeed the Japanese Society of New Orleans. So they've got a fantastic podcast uh, dedicated to various aspects of Japanese culture and to Japan-related topics overall. Highly recommended. And they brought me on to talk real estate in Japan, obviously, which, as you've probably figured out by now, if you regularly listen to this podcast, I'm happy to talk about till the cows come home. So we talk all things related to real estate in Japan, um, its accessibility to foreigners, whether resident or non-resident, the types of deals available on the market here, the types of clients that we serve and the services that we provide to them. Uh, we talk Akiyas, abandoned homes, short-term rentals, Airbnb, and much, much more. So really fun conversation. Hope you find some value in it. Enjoy, and I'll see you again on the other side. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Um, all of our guests are very special, but today's guest is very special. Uh, we have Ziv Nakajima Magan from uh, Nippon Trading International. He's a co-founder and Partner? CEO. Ah, partner. <laughs> I messed it up. Hold on. I'll, I'll re-record that piece and I'll You're put right. that in there. <laughs> All right. So, uh, <laughs> so why don't you uh, take it before we jump into our questions, uh, Ziv, would you like to take a second to introduce yourself? Um, sure. So um, Ziv Nakajima again, as you mentioned, um, my wife and I co-founded Nippon Tradings International or NTI for short uh, about a decade ago now. And what we essentially do is we represent um, people who are dealing in real estate in Japan, but for some reason or another are either not able to or not comfortable to handle things on their own. So about 80% of them are foreigners who don't actually reside in Japan. Um, and for various reasons, we can get into that later, but they can't open a bank account. They don't have an address and a phone number, which are still very much required when you're dealing with Japanese entities. 
Um, and of course, Japanese entities usually are not too comfortable dealing directly with foreigners in any language other than Japanese, especially ones not residing in the country. So we're like a one-stop shop for people who are either buying or selling or managing uh, real estate in Japan, whether it's investment properties, holiday homes, what have you. And 20% of our customers live in Japan, but again, for some reason or another, either language or they're just not comfortable or confident enough to do it on their own. Um, so we help them as well. So what you're saying is you're the man that everyone wants to be friends with. That's awesome. So before we jump further into the real estate side of things and your Japan, your background in Japan, uh, we ask our guests, uh, it's a kind of a, a common question. So if you've listened to our podcast before, you've heard it before, yep. um, we like to ask our guests what their connection is with New Orleans, whether or not they've been here before, or if you know, if you heard of New Orleans, what's the first thing you think of? And if you've been here, what's your fondest or funniest memory? So I haven't, I haven't been to New Orleans except uh, via remote participation through movies and stuff. But um, I would, I, I'm sorry if it's cliche, but I'd have to say jazz. I'm a big, uh, big jazz fan. Not, not like a big expert on it, but I just love it. So I, I'm sure that's most of what I'll be doing in New Orleans is just hop, club hopping, I guess. There you go. There's, <laughs> There's plenty of opportunities there. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We usually we usually get jazz and we usually get Mardi Gras. I think those are the two big ones or like French yeah, Quarter or something like well. that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, we just had Mardi Gras and it, it's over now. And now we're about to do what? Uh, St. Patrick's Day parades over here? Yeah, it's crazy. Parades never stop. We got festivals. <laughs> like all year I said, around. my exposure to New Orleans is mostly through um, through cinema or TV shows. So in my head, every time there's a Mardi Gras, there's got to be like spies jumping between balconies and stuff happening on the street. <laughs> Mardi Gras is kind of in the background, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. That's great. Well, to jump in, um, you know, we do want to, you know, get some really um, in-depth background of you. And so, you know, what's your Japan journey? Um, you know, what led to your interest in Japan and uh, eventually living there? Um, well, like a lot of us here, I sort of married into the country um, almost 20 years ago now, I want to say. Um, my first wife was Japanese. We actually met in Australia when I was living in Australia. I'm originally from Israel and didn't know anything about Japan whatsoever. So she was my introduction to Japan, so to speak. But then um, living together, I've been coming and going with her, you know, a few months at a time every year to uh, visit the uh, parents, the in-laws and so forth. And then we sort of lived here for about a year when our son was born. Um, she wanted to be close to her parents during that time. And then we came back to Australia. And then unfortunately, uh, when he was about a year and a half old, this is about uh, more than 10 years ago now, um, she passed away. She got cancer suddenly and it was just very, um, very sudden and she passed away. Oh, and then I wanted to somehow keep the connection alive to Japan uh, for his sake. I didn't, um, I mean, again, I'm originally from Israel, so that connection is always going to be, you know, relevant. And Australia was great, but it was for me like a host country. It's not somewhere that I, you know, emotionally attached to. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to somehow set a foothold in Japan, you know, financially and, and residency-wise, just to enable him to, to be connected to that part of his heritage. Um, so I was looking for something to um, invest in or some sort of business to set up and not being too experienced with um, anything investment wise except real estate. I sort of um, automatically was drawn to real estate in Japan as well. 
and um, not speaking, I mean, speaking a little bit of domestic Japanese at, at the time, but not really anything close to business skills. Um, I obviously needed a business partner, uh, which is one thing linked to another is how I, I met my uh, my current wife, Chikako. So she started off being my business partner. She wanted to get into international business. I wanted a Japanese partner and we started working together. We purchased a few um, properties for our own portfolio to start with. And having done that one, two, three times, we sort of realized that there should be a lot of people out there who would be interested in the market because it's a very attractive market, but would be running uh, into the same sort of uh, blockages or, or walls that we've been running through the first time around. Um, so we started marketing the service to others and the uh, rest is history kind of thing. That's awesome. Mm. Um. Yeah, I I just your your story is very unique. You know, all a bunch of the guests that we have on, you know, they already had like a you know knowledge of Japan. They've like either been or they just they studied up on Japanese culture before going over there. So I really like that you pointed out like you just didn't really have any kind of uh, predetermined conception about Japan, and uh, so it's very interesting. And now you're like so deep-rooted in Japan via business. Um, I really find that very interesting. Yeah, um, I, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> and to be honest, the Japanese, like the Japanese that I've been meeting and, and you know, hanging out with in Australia, because they're the backpacker types or, or you know, the, the surfer types, like the people who come to Australia, right? They, it was, the culture shock was very much in place when I actually came to the country for the first time because they were completely, they were a lot more like Australians than Japanese, the ones that I've met. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I went through the same kind of things that people go through when they come here for the first time, I think. That's good. Makes you mm. relatable when you're doing, you know, business with one another. That's awesome. Mm. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I really like the fact that you were really interested in keeping your, uh, like, keeping your son's heritage kind of in the forefront. Like, I, my wife is Japanese as well, and we have two kids. And one was just born four months ago. One of the reasons why I was running a little behind this, this afternoon. Uh, but... Uh, uh, you know, we're just trying to like make sure we keep that in front of him. You know, the you know the Japanese culture and Japanese language and just everything. Any opportunity, and it's been tough with the last with the pandemic and everything. Being able to not get over there because we used to travel um, quite a bit, like once a year or at least um, for the first few years of his life. So um, it's been tough the last few years not being able to you know really get over there and, and experience it. And I think that's a really important part when you have children that are you know from different backgrounds that shared and experienced multiple cultures and, and being international is great. So yeah, these days it'll be, um, it's a lot harder to keep the other parts of his heritage alive. Like he's very much Japanese at the moment. He's been here since he yeah. was three, three and a half years old or so. Um, so he, I mean, he, he doesn't behave like a Japanese person around the house, but if you look at him outside is yeah. By the book, Japanese. <laughs> Sounds like mine's, mine's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> Although less, less and less like Japanese. It's like weird language is a struggle. But I don't want to get on that side. That's a whole other uh, <laughs> conversation yeah, a, for another day. Another whole conversation. Yeah. Um, but to get deep into our topic for today, which is, you know, exploring, you know, real estate in Japan, um, you know, Something I hear is like purchasing property in Japan can seem very daunting to foreigners for many reasons and almost an impossible task, it seems. Um, a common thought many foreigners may have is that they, 
you know, can't purchase property such as a house in Japan. Um, you know, can foreigners, both who live in Japan and those who do not purchase a house in Japan, and, you know, what are the main differences in the process for a foreigner living in Japan versus a foreigner who is not living in Japan? Because you said 80% of your customers, um, you know, aren't living in Japan, whereas 20% are. So I'm really interested in finding out the differences between the two. Sure. So, I mean, those that misconception and, and another one, which I'll get to in a minute, are, are very common. And, and it makes sense because Japan's actually the only country in, in all of the Asia-Pacific region that doesn't have any uh, official limitations on foreign ownership of land or property. So you can definitely, all land in Japan is freehold, basically, and foreigners are entitled to the same rights that everybody else, uh, all residents have when they're purchasing and selling property here. So on an official uh, sort of government policy level, there is absolutely no difference between a foreigner, whether resident or non-resident, purchasing property in Japan. In fact, non-residents are exempt from a few municipal taxes that residents have to pay. So taxation-wise, uh, ownership-wise, uh, everything is exactly the same. The country is completely open. To, I mean, uh, cultural heritage properties or you know, land that's right near an army base or protected agricultural land is maybe a different matter, but that's a tiny tiny fraction of the market. So when you're thinking house or condo unit or building, that's all completely open. Um, the, the challenge is not in the official policies, but there's a big gap between what's officially uh, acceptable from a government standpoint and what's actually feasible and doable on the ground. So everything is open legally, but it's very, very difficult, unless you're purchasing in central Tokyo or central Osaka or maybe in some of the international ski resorts, there you would have uh, English-speaking professionals who are used to working with foreigners. But everywhere else in the country, which is usually where people are more interested in, whether it's for a holiday home in the countryside or for investment property with high returns, um, those locations are very um, foreigner shy. So the sellers, the real estate professionals, um, the local tax authorities, government authorities, they just don't they don't have the experience and they don't have the inclination to deal with uh, foreigners, let alone non-resident foreigners. And um, they and Japan being such a huge domestic market, they don't they've never really had the need to wrap their head around how to transfer, receive funds from overseas, send post overseas, communicate in English. They, they just don't know how to do it. And to be honest, it's a bit bit of a hassle for them. They've got such a big domestic market to draw on. They're not really catering to overseas buyers. So that's where the challenges come in, and that's where a company like ours uh, comes in handy. Yeah, good, because, you know, as a foreigner myself, not that I plan to move to Japan or anything, but, you know, just as a person that loves Japan, goes there a lot, um, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, I can't help but to look at property in Japan. I'm like, oh, this house is really nice. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of other people are thinking the same thing as me. Um, you know, when they see a house, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is gorgeous. You know, I wish I could, you know, have this house in, I don't know, Saitama. And, you know, I, I would love to live there. It looks beautiful. And, you know, I'm sure the first thing that crosses their mind is, oh, but I'm a foreigner, so there's no way I can. So it's good to hear uh, from you and, you know, that you have this company that can actually help foreigners, you know, realize that dream. 
Yeah, and even even for holiday, like from a financial perspective, it makes. I mean, if you're coming here for you know two three weeks a year, then yeah, just stay wherever you want to stay. But if you're coming in on a more regular basis and more often than that, or for longer periods of time, it um, just makes financial sense to buy a you know a little condo or a little house that you can actually stay in without having to pay for hotels or Airbnbs or what have you. Yeah, I mean that's 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 really awesome because again, I never really thought about purchasing. Or, you know, even that never really crossed my mind, even really a condo or some, anything, even though I have, you know, extend, extended family living over there. Uh, you know, my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law live over there, um, but never actually thought about it. Now, now after this conversation, I'm sure I'm going to be <laughs> doing the same thing as Jen. I'm going to ask Jen for, for some websites that she's using to look at properties. Uh, <laughs> um, but coming back to that, though, uh, what is, you know, what might be expected of someone who is a foreigner that's trying to purchase a house in Japan or a property in general? Um, are there any criteria that needs to be met for that person to be, you know, that they need to be aware of prior to even going through the process as a whole? Um, well, firstly, they need to be aware of that if they're non-residents and without a, a regular historical income stream in Japan, then financing is not going to be available to them. So there's, there are no loans for non-resident, um, even Japanese who haven't been living in the country for a while. Um, and are not no longer earning their salaries or income in Japan, even they can't access any loans. So it's more of a Japanese income stream uh, factor than a residency factor. Okay. And the only solutions for that are if you set up a, a company or a branch office of a foreign company in Japan um, and you start doing business in the country, um, or even if you don't, you may be eligible for a loan from certain particular lenders. But then... I mean, the, the the cost of upkeep for a company on an annual basis is going to be at least three to four thousand bucks a year. So unless if it's an investment property and you're making, you know, enough money to cover that and then some, then it makes sense. But if if half of your income is going to go for a company upkeep, it's, it just doesn't really make sense. And the, you don't really need that in many cases because properties, again, aside from central Tokyo, Osaka and some international hotspots, uh, property in Japan is still very, very affordable. So they had two and a half uh, decades of deflation. So since the 1990s, when the bubble burst here, properties um, have dropped down to about half of the uh, price that they were back in the day. And the rest of the world has kind of moved on and gone beyond that. So now Tokyo and Osaka are back to what you'd expect from major cities, but the rest of the country is still very cheap. So if we're talking about that, like a holiday condo unit, like, just like a little hotel room type um, in maybe an older building, say up to 20 square meters um in a lot of cities around japan they go for 30 40 000 us dollars so for the price of a deposit that you'd put on a loan elsewhere you could already buy the uh, property outright i was about to say you, if as long as if you had the let's say like purchasing a house in the u.s generally they want to see you know if, if possible you, you can get out of the homeowner's insurance or the purchasing insurance if you put 20 percent down so i was about to say if you can afford up front to put some kind of down payment on a house in the US, then basically, like you said, some of those homes that may be affordable in the countryside or in the more remote areas of the country, um, you know, you may not even need to be worrying about like financing or anything like that, just purchase outright. Yes, I would say though, with those countryside, I mean, you read a lot of articles about uh, Japan's giving away homes for free and you can buy a house yeah. for $500 yeah. or $5. <laughs> and that's essentially true, but you're getting a dump. So if if you are buying, yeah. an ag just because Japanese building materials are not very durable, they're not really meant to be. They're mostly wooden structures or at best, maybe steel frame structures. So if you're buying a condo unit in a reinforced concrete block, that's one thing. But if you're actually buying a house 
um, and it's older than say 25, 30 years, the annual maintenance is going to be quite steep. So the roof, the walls, termite protection, all of these things need to be done on a fairly regular basis and the houses deteriorate far faster. So those cheap, cheap, cheap houses are extremely run down. So if you're buying something for like 30, 40, 50,000, you're probably gonna be spending at least another 100,000 just to bring it up to speed kind of thing. Um, so you, if you're buying an actual house, you probably want to set your sights on 100, maybe 150 to get something that's livable and doesn't require immediate renovations. And not to, you know, deviate from the conversation too far, but those Akia homes too, if I'm not mistaken, I've read in a few articles or here and there, I've heard about them that they kind of come with some strings attached. You have to stay or live in the community when you're purchasing the home. You have to basically invest and raise your family. They want to have like a family, family oriented purchase. They want it to be younger, younger folks who have kids that are going to grow up and live and give back to the community. Um, so, yes, I, yes. you know, is that, is that kind of common for those type of lower, I guess the ones that require a, are a less amount of money to purchase outright, they do come with some ties to it where you have to agree or sign a contract to stay in the community for an extended period of time? Well, the ones that you're referring to are ones that are part of a particular municipal government initiatives in particular locations. So mm -hmm. if there's a particular township that's losing um, population fast and the government wants to try and spruce it up, then they're going to put out these kind of deals. And in those cases, then yes, they'll give you a free or almost free house and they'll even uh, participate or subsidize the renovations and so forth. But in that case, yes, they want you to move there. They want you to start a family there and contribute to the local community. So there are strings attached. But regardless of that, there are very cheap houses just on the market, um, yeah. there's something called the Akia Bank, which is like a local municipality website that lists all of the empty and abandoned homes that might be available if you want to grab them for cheap. Um, but again, they would be in pretty bad shape. So you can buy them cheaply. Not They're not going to be free like the government initiative ones, but they would be um, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 US, including the land parcel, which is usually going to be quite big in the countryside. And, but there's a lot of work. So unless it's like a labor of love project and you're planning to move there and do it yourself or you're planning to start a guest house there and you've got a whole five, 10 year plan in mind on how you're going to um, rejuvenate the, the house, that's it's not something that you would do. Uh, don't expect to buy that and immediately be able to just use it for holiday once a year kind of thing. It's not going not gonna to be um, not going to be applicable. Yeah, I've, I've, I used to live in, in Iwaki City in Fukushima and my where I lived in the this little sub uh, the town was very close to the countryside, uh, about a five minute drive out. You're in, in rice paddies and stuff. So, uh, I mean, you would see some of those homes though, like that they look abandoned, like just ghost mm -hmm. house, you know, and like no one in there, windows broken, like nothing, you know, no lights, no cars, no people, you know. Yeah. It, so I'm sure that's kind of what you're looking at when you were looking at those types of properties, right? The very cheap ones, yes, correct. Yeah. I mean, there, there's not going to be any. Um intentional i mean there's no squatters or anything of that sort yeah. in japan it's just just nature taking its toll kind of thing sure well with the question that doug posed um you know you briefly mentioned you know about the housing market in japan how the bubble crash and but you know tokyo and cities like osaka kind of recovered in some sense but i kind of want to touch back on that um seeing as how is the housing market in Japan as a whole? And, you know, are there differences 
from the housing market in America. Um, like, for example, you know, when we buy property, we're thinking about, you know, property value and the investment in the long run. So like we may put we may buy a house for like one hundred and forty thousand. That's being very generous, but one hundred and forty thousand dollars. But you know, if we put improvements on the house and stuff like that, it raises the value of the house to almost like, I don't know, two hundred thirty thousand. So, you know, how how's the housing market in Japan versus America when it comes to stuff like that? Um, so the, the fundamentals here are a little bit different to what you're probably used to, and not just in America and most, uh, maybe not most other countries, but definitely most Western countries. Um, so renovations can bring up the value of a house. If you bought a house that's quite old and, you know, hasn't been touched up since it was built and you renovate it to modern standards, then yes, it will get a better price when you resell it. But Generally speaking, Japan isn't a capital appreciation environment. So the last decade, like since 2012, end of 2012, when um, Prime Minister Abe came into power and he had his Abenomics and, you know, at least at least on the surface, things were definitely moving up. So we have had some property hikes and this is when Tokyo and Osaka actually came back to where they were pre-bubble and they're still there. Um, but the rest of the country hasn't been affected that much. So there are some... Hotspots is Fukuoka City, where we live, which was kind of a kind of a star and the rising star, and that's been on the rise since 2012 as well. It's like the gateway to Western Japan. And there's Niseko up in Hokkaido. It's a famous international ski resort, and they're selling properties for millions and millions of dollars and constantly building new resorts and so forth. But aside from that, the rest of the country has been pretty stagnant. So. The Western mentality of um, real estate cycles coming over every seven years and if not doubling, significantly raising the price of the property. And that's a trend that goes on and on and on over time. Um, not something that we would bank on strategically. So if you're purchasing a property here for your own personal use, um, you should be aware of the fact that it's most likely not going to gain in value. Um, and if you're purchasing an investment property, um, you shouldn't be banking on any capital growth as well, uh, as far as a, a financial strategy is concerned. So for investment purposes, Japan is very much a cash flow market. It's got a lot of attractive things going for it, um, but capital growth is definitely not part of them. Okay, yeah, that is different. Well, Doug, we'll have to tell Nigel, who is our other co-host, um, he, in a previous episode in season two, we were talking all about Hokkaido. And after our interview with our guests, he was like, I'm ready to move to Hokkaido. Well, we got to tell him maybe not so much. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the, the upside of that is that properties are still very, very cheap, right? There's no yeah. capital growth. It means that you can buy them cheaply. So that that's a definite plus. Yeah. And um, I mean, look, People come to Japan, um, again, the holiday home buyers that we serve come to Japan because they love Japan. They like a particular location or they like the country as a whole. We've got people who are saying just, you know, as long as I'm 30 minutes from any city, I don't care. I just want to be in Japan. <laughs> we got people that like the snow, that like the beaches down here in Kyushu or Okinawa or what have you. And that, that's a lifestyle choice, right? It's not necessarily something, but the, the Western concept that, you know, even if I buy a family home, it's going to be an asset that would appreciate in value. You kind of need to put that aside. And for investors, the people who buy into Japan for investment purposes, um, the cash flow is quite high compared to what you get in other, in other um, let's call it first world countries, right? So 
um, let's say high single digits in Tokyo, maybe 5% if you're lucky, but other cities can still go up to seven, 8% um, annual net return before tax. And the tenants are super stable and hassle-free. I mean, Japanese being Japanese, um, again, there's no squatters. If somebody is late on payment, which is very rare in Japan, and if they're chronically late or missing on payments, you just send them a letter and, and they politely move out, right? There's no forced evictions. You don't need to apply to court to kick a tenant out and wait for two or three years like you do in some countries. It just doesn't happen here. And they tend to stay in place for a very long time. Uh, compared to other countries. So your average single or young couple, usually between four to five years tenancy on average, and um, with a lot of them in place for 10, 20 years, uh, families can be in place even longer than that. And the business environment is very um, headache-free and, and convenient and professional as well. So you never need to worry about a property manager, you know, just letting the property fall into disrepair or running off with your money, insurance companies, HOAs, nobody's got their um, hands in your pockets to constantly hit you with uh, charges and fees that you wouldn't be expecting. That just doesn't happen here. Um, so, and the affordability is a big thing. So if a single asset overseas, you can probably buy three or four or five of them here, just gives you more diversity and hedging and so forth. So it's a very attractive environment for investment, but not in the sense that you would be used to um, in a capital appreciation kind of country. Wow, that was really more in depth than I thought you were going to give. So I'm Sorry. glad you did. No, <laughs> no, no I'm so glad you did because you just brought up stuff that I just never even thought of to ask. So I'm so glad you did. Um, but actually, you kind of touched on it. And so I kind of want to bring you back to it. And it's this big city versus countryside um, homes. You know, are there any benefits depending on? where you decide to purchase a house in Japan? Benefits as... Just like, you know, like maybe... Okay, so we already kind of know you said, you know, the big cities, you know, their value in property, you know, is kind of staying stable. And you were already saying like countryside, you know, you're looking at those more ch cheaper houses, um, preferably. You know, are there any other distinct benefits between the two that um, maybe we can't think of right now? Like all we see is the dollar signs, but you know, what, what else do you think there is between the two? Well, if you are thinking about financial gains, um, definitely the countryside is a bit iffy uh, investment wise, just because um, the, the, Japan's the fastest aging population in the world and the, the fastest shrinking population in the world. People are, you know, the population uh, average age is getting older and older and not many people are having babies. Um, and that, what that means is that all of those little um, villages and townships are slowly emptying out and conglomerating into the bigger metropolitan centers, right? So at some point, it's just not going to be worth it. Infrastructure quality declines, like, you know, the bus runs two, three times a day, then once a day. Um, you want to go to a hospital, it's a fair bit of a drive. It's just less and less services being issued to those smaller communities because there's just not enough people to maintain them there. And so the younger people, when they grow up, immediately move out of those smaller townships to the big cities. And even the older people, when they actually need you know, support close at hand, they, can't, they just can't stay there anymore, right? So if you're buying a property um, out in the countryside, your chances of getting a tenant when the property becomes vacant is a lot lower. So your vacancies are going to be much longer. 
you're going to have to charge uh, lower and lower rents as the as the population uh, declines there and unless you're actively taking action to market the place as a guest house or a resort or, or starting an actual business there and that's going to be obviously very hands-on it's not like a passive investment um, it's not really a good investment right so definitely get a house in the countryside if you want the quality of life and you want and you want to live in the countryside but for uh, financial reasons the asset class of choice is not wooden houses it's going to be um, either units in in co-owned reinforced concrete blocks so condo units or it's going to be a small building that's that's going to be wood or still framed wood but you own the entire structure and you can take care of renovations yourselves and again not too old maybe on purchase maybe 20 years at most and you want to be not necessarily in a big metropolitan center, but you want to look at your... So part of the due diligence that you do when you purchase property in Japan, especially for investment purposes, is you look at the population figures of that particular municipality. So you want to make sure that the town has got um, stable population and more than a single kind of, you know, one trick pony kind of industry or single employer. Um, just in case if that, you know, single employer or single industry for some reason peters out, then there's suddenly nothing going for the town, right? We interrupt this broadcast, I always wanted to say this, we interrupt this broadcast to tell you about Tokyo Family Stays. They're a short-term rentals company in Tokyo and they offer a home away from home experience which is just perfect for remote working, quarantining, or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today see how they can help you maximize your property's income and again as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever so feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com well worth your visit and again if you're in the market for a family home in or around the tokyo metropolitan area Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. Um, so you don't necessarily have to be within a big city, but you want to be in a place that's actually has got stable population, stable employment, stable industries. And then you know that you're going to regularly be able to repopulate the, the property when it becomes vacant. And Again, on the maintenance side, you want to make sure if you are buying a wooden structure, like say 
those six or eight or ten unit blocks that you can buy in Japan are quite cheap. You can buy them for usually under half a million US. You can buy like a small building with say four, six or eight uh, single like studio or single bedroom apartments. Um, but if you're buying that because it's going to be a wooden structure, make sure that you're buying it 20 years uh, or younger. And if you're buying a unit in a co-owned condo block, like a single apartment, maybe make sure the building is not older than 30 years on purchase um, because they're going to keep renovating it, but building fees will go up as the building gets older. So that obviously shrinks your yield as well. Oh, and the other thing is you want to be within 10 minute walking distance from a train or a subway station um, or in towns where they don't have train or subway within it uh, to a tram station. Uh, Bus is not as popular in Japan as the other forms of transport. Oh, buses. Well, there are you pain. go. You're you're <laughs> you're giving us more information that I I just I'm learning so much, thinking about so much. You're giving me things that I just I'm not thinking about. And that's no, great but, because I know our listeners may be in my situation as well. <laughs> yeah, and and that bus that point that you it. made was huge because those buses they'll take random days when they're off and you <laughs> unless you're really good with that schedule <laughs> you know you'll you'll like go wait at a bus stop and if you don't look at the schedule you'll be sitting there for 15 20 minutes you're like what's going on this bus should have been here by now and yeah oh oh yeah if you think off. about your typical salaryman on his way to work in the morning yeah. there's no way they're going to move into a property where they have to take a bus every morning no. they just won't do it this is they'll more buy a car. Um, <laughs> the buses are more the domain of um like retirees um housewives, the unemployed, the people who are actually commuting to and from work every day. Um, so yeah, if they're a family, they'll have at least one car in the house. Uh, in that case, if, you know, if you're actually looking into a place that's got a parking spot attached to it, then that's not a huge concern. But because of Japan's demographics, most of your tenants are going to be singles or maybe young couples without kids. And those people would usually not have a car. So the distance to the station uh, is really important. Yeah, that's that's great. I, and like like Jen said, I'm I'm soaking all this up because I was never even thinking about it as an investment. I was thinking it was just like a since like I said, we go there, we try to go there every year at least, and you know we stay with my mother in law or sister in law. But you know, hey, maybe maybe we'll find a house around there somewhere. Um, that's a totally different set of criteria, though, right? Like if yeah. you're buying a place for your own use, then you just buy what you like yeah. and feel comfortable in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, um, that, that kind of brings me to the next point. If I were personally, just me individually, if, I, if my wife wasn't part of the picture in terms of purchasing, and it was just me as a single foreigner looking to purchase a home, or a couple who are both foreigners, not one of them that is a Japanese citizen, what are some of the challenges that a foreigner uh, might face when trying to purchase a house in Japan? I know that for rental properties, there's a lot of things where you need a guarantor of sorts, like a Japanese guarantor, or... Um, you know, a, a very hefty down payment for rent, like key money and all that stuff for uh, rental yeah. properties. But are there similar challenges like that for actually purchasing a property? Um, so the short answer is no. Essentially, if you're, if you're purchasing in cash or if you're residing in Japan and you've got loan approval or, you know, fairly likely to have your loan approved, then most sellers and agents would be happy to sell to you. They're, they're not too concerned about you being a foreigner because it's transactional. They don't need to be in touch with you after the purchase and you know off you go with the property. Um, but again, you run into the same sort of challenges that we've mentioned at the start is that they just don't know how to work with you, right? So everything in Japan, you know, it's, it's a running joke, but it's still very true about the fax machines, right? Like everything in Japan is done via 
post or fax machines or physical hanko, like stamps on documents, everything needs to be handwritten and signed. So there is just no way that Japan will be, again, central Tokyo, central Osaka, a few spots notwithstanding. Your typical Japanese realtor in, in most normal places around the country is not going to be able to work with you if you don't have a local address, a local phone number, um, if he can't meet you face to face or pick up the phone and call you any time of the day and night, and they do that on weekends and evenings and like, they don't even use voicemail here for some reason. I haven't actually, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what, where that comes from, but if a Japanese professional wants to talk to you, they'll pick up the phone and call you. They're not going to send a message and, and ask you if they can call you or schedule a meeting. They're going to pick up the phone and call. And if you don't answer, they're not going to leave a message. They're going to try again five minutes later and five minutes later until they get a hold of you because they want to give you some information that they can only relay on a phone call for some reason. So unless they can do that with you on a regular basis throughout the purchase process, they're just going to um, just going to back off and not they enter Japanese freeze mode. Like they don't want to say no officially, but they just stop answering or stop replying or stop responding, right? So you want to either be present in the country and have somebody fluent in Japanese that can pick up the phone and attend meetings and sign documents and so forth, or you want to walk through a work through a proxy like ourselves. Gotcha. Well, that's all. Like I said, I was about to say, if, if you need help or if you're not in Japan, just navigate where you kind of point them and funnel them towards you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> no, no, not, not, not only us though. I mean, if you are, again, if you are in central Tokyo, there are some agents that are, um, I think Tokyo has about a, dozen agents that can cater to foreigners that I'm aware of. And at least three of them I know personally that I can personally recommend as well. Um, Osaka, I think, has about five or six. Fukuoka has two or three. Rest of the country, you might need someone like us. Yes. Cool. Well, um, kind of bringing it back to the the purchasing for the sake of business, whether it's a, a you know, if you're doing a rental property, like a, you know, an actual like apartment view, or if it's going to be more of like a destination, like travel destination, like bed and breakfast or something like that, where you're not expecting long-term rentals or anything like that, but it's just short-term bookings. Um, you know, what is, what, what is the difference in per in terms of purchasing a property? Like you said, it is transactional. So, you know, they just want the money and then they don't have to deal with you anymore as in terms of the agent. But when you're buying something for the purchase uh, purpose of running a business versus uh purpose of you know personal you know my my own personal vacation home um mm. is there are there other barriers that come into play where you need to have like do you have to have some type of proof of your business being established you mentioned cash flows within the country um is that even more so do you need to prove that your business exists and are, like what are those requirements that they may have for you as a business owner or if you're planning to open or start a business once this property is in your possession so there's a there's a big difference between just standard long-term rental leases or even monthly rental leases uh, and guest houses, share houses, Airbnb, and that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as everything is done with a proper um, tenancy lease in place and the minimum occupancy period is one month or more, um, then that's pretty standard. You don't need to set up a business in Japan. You don't need to reside in Japan. As long as you get you know past the logistics of actually managing it with somebody on the ground, that's you can own it from overseas as an individual. There's no company set up or anything of that sort required. If you're talking about short-term stays, so anything that's done for periods of less than one month and without a tenancy lease in place, that's a whole different kettle of fish. So there are two ways to go about that one. One is um, officially called minpaku in Japan. That's a 
casual short-term leasing. Um, and those are the types of properties that you'll see on Airbnb um, that are not actual resorts or hotels or so forth. For those, you need a licensed management company that's licensed to um, handle Minpaku leases. Um, and again, that's something that's going to be available usually only in bigger cities. There's just not enough business for them to set up shop in the smaller townships because um, aside from you, maybe no one's ever opened an Airbnb there, right? So they're not yeah. going to have people on the ground who are able to serve you there. Um, in the bigger cities, um, it's very municipal in nature. So in late 2018, the government revamped the uh, Minpaku, the short-term stay legislation, because it was a bit of a gray zone. Um, depending on who you ask, some people say that it was because um, people were just doing very unprofessional operations and it was getting dangerous and bothering the neighbors and so forth. Other people say there was a lot of pressure from the hotel lobby who saw that Airbnb was getting a little bit too popular for comfort for them. So whatever the reason, they've completely revamped the legislation late 2018. And these days, uh, the first thing they did is they gave uh, owner unions of, of condo buildings now have the right, uh, not just the right, by default, if they haven't specifically written in the owner uh, rulebook, owner union rulebook that short-term stays are allowed, then by default, they are not allowed. So you, you cannot do that in a co-owned building that has an owner union. You can do that um, officially, theoretically, if you own the entire structure. So if you own the building or if you own a house, you can do that. But then it goes to municipal um, individual ward regulation. So the general uh, national guideline is that you can only do that for half the year. So 180 days a year, you can rent the property out short term. And then each ward has its own regulation. So some of them necessitate a 24-7 call person within, say, 500 meters from the property at any given time. Some of them only allow you to do it on the weekend. Some of them dictate a certain distance from um, public facilities like nursing homes or elderly care or, or libraries or whatnot. So it's really a matter of which area you're interested in and what's allowed uh, there. Beyond that, if you want to really do it kind of properly without worrying too much about these kinds of things and just uh, be able to rent it out throughout the year and actually run a profitable business, you can apply for a hotel or in license, um, which sounds big, but it's not really. It's about a thousand bucks for the application. You need to um, you need to jump through some hoops as far as um, there needs to be like a certain area uh, dedicated for like a reception area. There needs to be certain um hygiene, fire, and safety regulations that you'll follow. But once you're granted this kind of license, which is maybe not doable in a completely residential area, but if the area is zoned even slightly commercial, then you should be able to do that there. And then you just, you, you know, you put your license on the wall, you hire staff to actually run the property and, and you're good to go. Okay. Just easy as that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's the process in theory. You still want to, you still want to make sure that you're like before you actually go ahead and purchase a property that you think you're going to turn into that. You want to check into ward office regulations. Yeah. You want to see. You want to get an architecture. So once you check with the ward office regulations, they'll give you um, a spec of what the property needs to look like and um, to actually qualify for the license. And then you might want to bring an architectural inspection company in to see if the property doesn't qualify, how much it would cost you to like um, tear a couple of walls down, uh, you know, install a few. Uh, for example, if there's, uh, I, I we don't deal much in short-term rentals, but this just off 
things that I've heard from people who do, like between the second or third floor or between each floor of the property, there needs to be a fire safety door, that kind of thing. So you just want to, it's not something that you jump into without some proper research, but it is doable. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, I, I think anyone really that would be even considering this option or doing this, I mean, proper research is definitely one of those looking at those regulations and, and understanding what exactly you're getting into before you may, hopefully well, before you'd, you made be, that you'd be amazed at how many people actually contact us and expect that they'll be able to buy one of those 20, 30,000 old Akia homes uh, out in the countryside and immediately lease it out Airbnb. Like we, there's a bit of education to be done, but which is fair enough. I mean, in other countries, it's not as strict as that. Like you, you can actually do that, yeah. but here it's not the case. Wow. Well, this wasn't actually a question we were going to ask, but I'm curious just because of the global situation we are in currently. And, you know, we're on our second year of the pandemic, um, hap like being here. Um, you know, if you don't mind uh, sharing with us and the uh, listeners, you know, how has the pandemic, you know, affected your business? Um, cause I know, like, I always hear articles in Japan and they're always reporting like, you know, businesses are shutting down in Japan or, you know, it's just, it's really rough over there. Um, and I, I, it hurts me because Japan is like my second home. Um, mm -hmm. I go to Kyoto all the time. And so, um, they're getting hit really hard, <laughs> but, um, you know, how is your business doing and like, how are y'all keeping afloat until, you know, you know, foreigners can come back to Japan? Um, well, not to be insensitive, but for us personally, 2020 was our best year to date and 2021 was even better than that. And that's mainly because we serve a lot of investors and investors are opportunistic bastards by nature. Whenever a crisis hits, they know that there's going to be good deals to be had, right? So You know you're not wrong. You're not yeah. wrong at all. <laughs> So we, we, we personally have not suffered, have not suffered from the crisis in Japan in general. Like, it's funny, you mentioned Kyoto, um, businesses are definitely suffering in Kyoto, but if you ask the residents and they have, they've run some surveys, they are so happy with the tourists being gone. Oh, I bet. Like they, they want <laughs> oh, the tourists sure. to never come back. Um, other cities, I mean, Kyoto specifically is very, I mean, in our, in our Western, um, you know, kind of tour, I mean, even as, as Gaijin is living in Japan, we're always going to be kind of tourists, right? So yeah. in, our, in our eyes, Kyoto is like, oh, the tourist destination. But Kyoto is, is a powerhouse for professional services and academic. and, and um, It really very, is. It's a white collar city with a lot of things going for it aside from tourism. And that sort of reflects what's going on in the rest of the country. So hospitality and retail businesses, um, let's put it this way, hospitality was hit hard. Um, but... Again, depending like tourism resorts, maybe were hit harder. Um, but hotels that are within a certain distance from the city were not. Business hotels are slowly recovering because domestic traffic is now definitely happening again all over the country. And um, restaurants have suffered client-wise, but they were receiving huge subsidies from the government. I actually know quite a few people who... Um, applied for a, a, a food and beverage license because of those subsidies. They weren't even thinking to offer those services until they heard they're getting 600 bucks a day uh, just for staying closed, right? So the government has, I mean, I think in Asia, we, we, we were the uh, country where government uh, subsidies for businesses hurt by COVID was probably the highest. So 
as as in all things japan there are not going to be massive layoffs here there's not going to be um you know lenders foreclosing on mortgages there's like an unspoken agreement between financial institutions and the government to keep things afloat to avoid to avoid economic malaise and um whether it's the right decision or not is a topic for debate but it's definitely helped to 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 float the economy through it right it's been doing very well and um, even when they had lockdowns, they were very soft lockdowns, right? So restaurants couldn't serve alcohol or they, you know, they were asked to close after 8 p.m. People were politely asked to stay at home. And Japanese being Japanese, I mean, masks were a thing from the get-go here, right? Like everybody was wearing masks all throughout the winter anyway because of influenza. And so for them, it was a no-brainer to, like everywhere you go anywhere now, even in a small side street, everyone's wearing a mask, right? So the economy obviously has not you know been expanding but compared to what it's been like in other countries japan is not suffering that much again not not to be insensitive hospitality businesses restaurants bars um, some retail stores uh, especially like luxury retail stores were doing very well because everybody who couldn't travel overseas to spend their money had to spend it um, in the country right so all of the well-off shoppers are still here and they're very much active um but Retail centers in smaller uh, suburban areas, especially second, third floor shops and so forth, um, are hurting. But again, we're, we're very fortunate in the sense that it's not nearly as bad as it is in other locations. That's good to hear because, um, you know, I know you say like it, you you didn't really get hurt by it, which is great. Um, you know, those people who know what they know, you know, they know when things go wrong, you act now because they're going to get better eventually. Um, But for the average person, uh, you know, like Doug and I, you know, um, I'm sure people will be looking to, um, you know, work with you um, in the future when they feel, oh, you know, now I can do this, you know, um, vacation home in Japan now that the borders are open. Um, So I'm sure they're excited to maybe work with you in the future i mean holiday home shoppers for us haven't really dropped off that much in any case as well they um they i mean if you're buying a family home and you're going to be moving in and spending every day of the year there with your family then you definitely want to go in person and check out the homes with a real estate agent and we don't really deal in that area much because it requires very local hands-on accompaniment accompanying uh, buyers throughout the process. But holiday home shoppers seem to be, from the get-go with us, have been very, very comfortable with us viewing and doing walkthroughs on their behalf and just giving them a layout and uh, of the land. And, you know, we even, these days, we even do renovations for them. Well, they like, we've got people who've bought a holiday home and are completely renovating it via us. They haven't even been to the country yet. So that's that's never been an issue for them for some wow. reason. And investors, again, investors were having a field day. Now, not so much because um, prices have started to recover again. But um, the first six months or so of the pandemic, there were really good deals to be had, especially in Tokyo and Osaka, which are usually not very affordable. Um, it, it was uh, yeah, it was a party for investors for a while. Did um, this is this is more so of a question? I'm not sure if it really impacted Japan much, but in the U.S., I know during the pandemic. Um, during the lockdown, like last two years, like the price of lumber and the price of like supplies to renovate homes has like skyrocketed um, due to shortages and and logistical, you know, like supply chain issues. Yeah. Um, has that? I know you met, just mentioned that you had done some renovations for folks who are buying investment homes and whatnot. Are those same um, 
like supply chain issues impacting those costs to renovate homes over there? Or is it, is it somewhat different since it's more of a, I don't know, uh, you know, is there a lot of importing of, you know, those types of materials that are used for those renovations or is it all domestic driven? There is. So Japan is very much an importer of a lot of raw materials. It's much more of an importing country than an exporting country. Um, prices have been affected to some degree, not super substantially, but what uh, we have been seeing is a lot of delays, right? So renovations that were scheduled to start within a month started three, four months later because there was just no uh, yeah. incoming materials. So that has been affected. The other thing that's been affected from a business standpoint is um, the nature of vacancies. So we're not seeing more vacancies than usual. In fact, we're seeing slightly less than usual because people, um, because of constant, you know, soft lockdowns and, and not really quarantines, but people prefer not to relocate or move around so much during the pandemic. So we're not seeing too many vacancies, but when we do get a vacancy for exactly the same reason, it can, it can be a lot longer because again, people are not relocating, so nobody's sure. moving in. So that's been affected slightly, but again, not to any significant degree. Um, delays delays is more than uh, has been affecting us more than costs. Gotcha. Well, thank you for humoring me. Um, I just I, I, I was just curious. <laughs> um, but before we end our interview with you, um, you know, I do want to kind of bring it open to you to, you know, do you have any advice, last final advice that you could possibly give our listeners who are seriously considering purchasing a home in Japan? And what would you tell them? Um, aside from everything that we've just spoken about, um, the other thing that we've never really touched on is the, the difference in mentality when you're doing business in Japan, right? So if you think about how it works in other countries, if you come into any country, um, whether it's a Western country or other countries within Asia, um, you would come. You would be coming in as a foreign uh, investor or a foreign buyer, a cashed-up foreign buyer or investor. That'd be there'd be a host of professionals just waiting to work with you, right? Like, give us your money, we'll find you the best property that we can get you, and you actually sort of have to uh, sift through them to find the reliable ones, right? Here, it's exactly the other way around in the sense that everyone is reliable and professional, but they really don't want to work with you. So you really need to sift through them to find the ones that will agree to work with you from the get-go. And then everything here also is about relationships. So the Western mentality of uh, you know cash is king or the customer is, is king, the customer is king, but once they become a customer and to become a customer in Japan, you need to build a relationship with the people that you're going to be working with. And if you start hitting agents with uh, multiple requests and, uh, you know, where's the report I was waiting for? No, this potential property is not what I was looking for. What? Don't you get what I'm talking about? They're just going to not work with you at all. You're, you're by nature more of a hassle for them to work with from the get-go. So you really want to do things the proper slow pace Japanese way when you're working with Japanese professionals. And real estate is no different. It's actually an older school industry here. So... Just take your time, learn how things are done here. Um, if you're walking through someone like us, then we'll guide you through it. But if you're doing it on your own, just listen and see how things are done and accept that they're not going to be done the way that you used to. And um, like all things, Japan, like mind your manners is always a good way to start relationships here. Definitely. I think Definitely. that's great advice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, thank you again so much for joining us for the, in, this conversation. It was so much fun. 
like I said, I was a sponge. I was just listening. Like I forget that I'm actually <laughs> supposed to be asking questions sometimes. Cause I'm like, just I'm like, all right, I got to take some notes. Like Jen was saying. <laughs> yeah. You um, have no idea how appreciative I am of you coming on to the show. Um, because you know, I, I don't know. I just, I found this topic always so fascinating, but I was like, how can we get a discussion about it? Who can we always, like, who can we get on to discuss, like, such a complicated topic that is real estate? Because I know in America, sometimes real estate gives us a headache just thinking about it. <laughs> um, so uh, we really do appreciate you coming on and uh, really helping guide us and our listeners to, you know, possibly owning a house in Japan. So totally I really appreciate that. And then I'm guessing your listeners are mostly audio oriented, just listening to a podcast. So yes. if you Google or on the iTunes store, wherever you're looking, Japan Real Estate Podcast, uh, we're the only ones out there. We put out content once, twice a week, and it's quite popular and quite informational, I think. So uh, help yourself to subscribe and you'll love it, I think. If you, if you Yeah, like and it. you're also on YouTube, correct? That podcast? Yes, yes. The podcast is on YouTube as well, Japan Real Estate Um Japan underscore real underscore estate on youtube.com. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Well, there you go. And what is your, um, just so if folks wanted to reach out to you for your business, uh, to what, what would your website, what would they need to go to? And um, so the website is nippontradings.com, Nippon with a double P, tradings with an S. So nippontradings.com, all one word. And best way to reach me personally is uh, via LinkedIn. I'm the only one out there with that name. So uh, don't be shy, reach out. <laughs> Awesome. There you go. There you go. Well, and we'll thank you uh, we'll so sure much. Yeah. We'll, yes, we'll we're going to put it in our show notes. Very much a pleasure. Good talking to you. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, huge thanks again to the crew of Japan for having me on. It was a blast speaking with you. I really enjoyed our time together. Hope you did it as well. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day.